I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, The Merry Wives of Windsor. play what a play the merry vibes of windsor as i accidentally titled it in my notes <laughs> i like that i mean it's i have a my, my feelings about this play are so sort of <laughs> more mixed and complicated than on the one hand i was gonna say than this play deserves but then also like one of those feelings is like this play deserves to have complicated more. mixed feelings about it yeah i think it totally. gets like really um dismissed out of hand in a way that I find strange just because worse mm-hmm. plays get done more. That's totally true. You know, I actually had, cause I've, I have both read it and seen it, but not for years, but uh, revisiting it this time, I had kind of the experience I had with two gentlemen where somehow it just struck me in such a way. I don't know if I was just really ready for Mary Wives this week, but I really felt very charmed by it. Like something about its total wackiness really hit me in such a way this time where I was like, actually I'm, I'm completely vibing this. Like, this is really funny. I feel like it's a play where every time I've seen it, it's felt like the production is trying to fight against it in some way. And I also actually had that exact experience reading it as well of just being like, Mm. man, if I just like roll with this and let it be like really just kind of bonkers and weird and like very silly, it's fun. Actually, it's really fun. And the thing is, it's like, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but even the stuff that isn't uh, deep or juicy or interesting, like the B plots, the C plots are so silly. It's just so it's, I just couldn't shake the feeling that it was just like a clown car of Muppets. Like it's absolutely Muppety. It's so broad and cartoonish in so many of the like small parts characterizations that it's really like tonally very clear to me how silly it's supposed to be, right? I mean, cause yeah. it's just one of those like Shakespeare makes fun of everybody's accents joints, which is always a fun <laughs> place to hang out. Right, right. You do have that. You do have that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about kind of how people deal with this play and like, yeah. but first um, let's, let's, let's get into a re with get into a kind of brief plot overview and yeah. then maybe we can like dig in a little more and then we can kind of jump into the act by act that we uh, usually do. Mm. Um, so the Mary Bites of Windsor is about the town of Windsor, um, an <laughs> affluent suburb of London. I mean, I don't know if it's technically a suburb, but it's like a town that's right there. Um, and it uh, concerns a crossover with Falstaff and his buddies from mostly from Henry the Fourth Part Two, Pistol, mm-hmm. Bardolph, and then Nim, who only shows up in Henry the Fifth. Um, basically crashing into this town that has its own kind of interpersonal dramas. Everybody wants to marry Anne Page, the like pretty young daughter of one of the, of the page, the pages, one of the like couples in town. Um, and Falstaff is broke and decides he is going to seduce both Mistress Page and Mistress Ford to get at their husband's money. Um, and Mistress Page and Mistress Ford through various machinations, they and their husbands all find out that this is, under discussion, Mr. Page, not worried. Um, Mr. Ford, intensely jealous um, and sort of comes up with this elaborate scheme to try and spy on his wife to like see if she's gonna cheat on him. Meanwhile, the two wives are like, let's trick Falstaff and basically like 
punish and humiliate him so much that he'll never try something like this with a married woman ever again. Um, and there's a series of like very slapstick episodes basically yeah. of like them almost getting caught by forge who they know is coming. So they force Falstaff into these like humiliating disguises and hiding places um, culminating in this like weird, a weird festive kind of green man. They send him out into the woods where he'll be attacked by quote unquote fairies, which are the village children in disguise. This is also the moment that the various factions who are wanting to marry Anne Page, uh, mostly her parents, arrange for their two suitors of choice to like kidnap Anne and sneak off and marry her, but Anne takes matters into her own hands. And at the end of the day, everything is fine. And there's a lot of subplots with a lot of other people in the town as well, which we'll get into, I think, as yeah. they come up. Um, the end people, of the day, everything is fine. <laughs> it is. And people yeah. like really um, hate this play. It's really interesting that because, and I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll super get into it. The thing that I kept feeling, and even just listening to you describe the main action there is like, what a scale shift from the plays that we've just been talking about. I couldn't <laughs> stop thinking that this week of just like the grandeur and the ferocity and the sort of like enormity of the canvas in like the Henry Six plays. And then this is the first comedy that genuinely feels like, it feels like a contemporary sitcom to me. Like this plot, this plot is sitcom scale. Yeah. And like in a way that is so fun and it is kind of episodic and like, but also the community feels like a, sitcom community it's sort of like all of these neighbors and everybody is kind of peeping over each other's fences and getting involved and it's just this like cat town full of busybodies in a really like recognizable way yeah and I think I mean so like I think the thing that you see I mean I just I feel like the responses I see to this play artistically mm. are so for lack of like a less harsh words like sexist and classist yeah. Um, I think that you like here in the UK, it like it will be set in Essex. The women will have these like big claw nails and like wigs, you know, and I think similarly right. in the States, it's like it's going to be set in Jersey. It's like, or, Jer yeah, it's like the Jersey Shore. Yeah. yeah. It's like we want to make it like, oh, they're like these trashy nouveau riche. And like that sort of the idea of like, oh, it's reality TV, like it's a sitcom, but trashier is like for some reason, like the only language Yes. people can kind of hit upon for like, I don't know, making a case for this play or like, they're like, oh, it's about two married women. So they must be sort of like trashy slags. Like, I don't. Which is, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, do we just want to say it? Like, do we just think that people, people um, are down on it and dismissive of it just because the main engine of the plot is like female friendship? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't want to oversell how, like the rest of the plot is like wild. It is a oh, weird, weird play, but it's, it's also so like crazy. <laughs> comedy of errors is a weird, weird play. And um, Taming of the Shrew I is a weird, weird play. One. I'm no, I'm no, I'm no fan of comedy of errors really, but yeah, I don't know. It's, um, but yeah, I mean, which is to say like, yeah, I do think, I do think so. Um, mm -hmm. Interest. I mean, it's interesting because it does feel I just the same the same as I felt with two gentlemen is that there are things where because it's also not a play I've ever done so it's a play that I feel kind of fresh about and like I haven't personally considered it very deeply so it's kind of fun to get to those ones and then be like oh and both of them have elements that feel to me very kind of 
recognizable and resonant in contemporary forms. Like this does feel like sort of smart TV to me in a certain kind <laughs> of way, you know what I mean? But not in a like uh, Jersey Shore type of way. And I know I've totally seen people respond to it. The, I, I, the only time I've ever seen it live, I saw a really good production of it at the Globe in like 2010. Yeah, I I've think. heard that production was really good. I really liked it. And actually it had, they added a bunch of music and stuff and like, there are things about the final scene, about the sort of community ending up all together and sort of eventually celebrating um, Fenton and Ann Page's marriage and sort of chastising Falstaff, but getting him kind of back into the fold. There are things about the way they used song in that final scene that I still think about kind of often, actually. And it was a very, but it was a really like um, pretty playfully, but, but, concretely period you know it was a pretty like elizabethan feeling production it didn't do any work to update it and with the result that i remember not thinking about the period at all you yes. know like i didn't i just didn't do any work i just was you was able to just kind of like sink into the flow of the story and i remembered weirdly because that production was more than 10 years ago in my brain as i was rereading the text today I was thinking about like there were jokes that they did that I remembered in their whole dimension, you know, like things yeah. about like the women with the basket and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, that actually plays really funny. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think that, you know, I don't think he directed it, but it was when Dominic Drumgoole was artistic director. And that was very much his kind of M.O. was like it's just set in like a nebulous Elizabethan -y nothing yeah. period that you just don't have to really expend any extra thought on. <laughs> Yeah. And it didn't feel stuffy. It felt, it felt goofy in a way that was like totally it. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I've seen it, it's been pretty heavily adapted with like fun effect. Sometime I saw a very, like an eighties version at the Oregon Shakespeare festival that incorporated a lot of sort of like group yeah. dance numbers to like eighties hits, which like, Oh, that's fun. It was really fun, but like they cut so much of the text that you sort of are left feeling, you know, it, it straddled that line of like, how much trust do you have in this play when you feel you need to get rid of this much of it? Totally, totally. And I mean, to our purposes, is it gay? I don't know, but it sure has interesting bees in its bonnet about heterosexuality. <laughs> yeah, so let's dive, let's dive in. Um, yeah. I think, so starting in act one, I think that the mm -hmm. thing that really on that note of like the bees and its bonnet, <laughs> the thing that really jumped out at me in this act is how from the very beginning, it is absolute ages before we have a conversation between a man and a woman, but the entire first act is concerned and the first scene is concerned with marriage and like immediately marriage is set up as a negotiation between two or more men. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because like not all of the plot threads end up mattering, of course, in the end, but you're right. As we can, as the kind of waves of them begin, cause it's, it's various people in yeah, their so factions. We, yeah. It's, about Anne. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's Sir Hugh, the Welsh accented person conspiring with Shallow, who we will meet in Henry the fourth part two, and we eventually do it trying to get his son, his like nephew, uh, slender, slender. There's, there's shallow silence and slender all in this. And it's horrible. Um, it is but fortunately only slender really matters. Um, oh, and simple. There's oh, and simple. simple yeah. Silence, not silence. It's simple. Yeah, simple. Silence isn't God. Um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, <we'll get> there. <laughs> 
they're trying to get slender married to Anne Page. And it's, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I just want to like dive in and quote really quickly some lines that I feel like encapsulates the way this gets framed. Um, Shallow says that you must, will you upon good dowry, marry her? Slender says, I will do a greater thing than that upon your, upon your request, cousin, in any reason. Shallow says, nay, conceive me, conceive me, sweet cousin. What I pleasure, what I do is to pleasure you, cuz. Can you love the maid? And Slender replies again, I will marry her, sir, at your request. And so it's just like from the beginning and like repeatedly throughout it's a lot of scenes of men reassuring each other. They're like, no, 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 no. You're my choice. I choose you. It's you. You're the one I want to marry Anne. Yes, that's so good. I wrote down, I wrote down a piece of that same scene, but a couple lines further, where after Slender says, I will marry her, sir, at your request, he then says, but if there be no great love in the beginning, yet heaven may decrease it upon better acquaintance when we are married and have more occasion to know one another. <laughs> And I mean, like, I know we were, we were joking about it before we began this record, but I feel pretty clearly like, like the issue with Slender is that Slender is a gay man. (laughs) It is. Yeah. I mean, I, (laughs) later, (laughs) I'll just skip ahead because we're talking about it. it. When he has his one conversation with Anne that we see, um, first (laughs) Shallow keeps doing all the talking and Anne has to butt in and be like, good master Shallow, let him woo for himself. And then when that actually happens. Um, she at one point is like, I mean, Master Slender, what would you with me? And Slender says, truly, for mine own part, I would little or nothing with you. Your father and my <laughs> uncle have made motions. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so just funny. the irrelevance. I mean, on the one hand, it's like the irrelevance of women, but really it's just like the irrelevance of sex. <laughs> like it's like it's just it, it is really stripping marriage down Mm -hmm. to the idea that it is on the one hand, like an economic and social transaction, but like, Mm -hmm. it also just never loses track of the fact that like, it's a means of strengthening and demonstrating the relationships between men. Totally, totally. And the thing, it continues to be a factor, but the thing that really jumped out at me in act one is also just how baldly mercenary everybody's calculations are. I mean, like Hugh, the Welsh parson, um, has such a long, you know, like description of Anne's kind of qualities. And they're all just about how much money her dad has. Yeah. And it's like all these guys sitting around in the bar or whatever, just talking about like, and she's great. And her dad has so much money and she's great. And when he dies, she'll have so much money. But it's still like, even then it's like, and like, this is a show of friendship between the two of Mm -hmm. them. It's like, I'm setting this up for you to demonstrate how much I like you. Mm -hmm. Like I'm doing you this favor of getting your nephew, this great partner. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it's interesting too, that like, just to kind of weave Falstaff's shenanigans into the same, into the same, you know, mold, his, all of his desire to get at you know Mr. Page and Mr. Sword is also mercenary it's so interesting because I think people think of this play as you know because I I think I've even like I have heard people respond to this play uh negatively on the grounds that like oh I don't know like Falstaff is a little bit creepy and like the kind of I don't know the sort of um 
the body sexual sneaking is like maybe less than savory, but it's actually like, it's not even sexually motivated. Like that's right. not even why he's there. Yeah. It's all fake. And it's wild to be like, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's a couple elements of this that are like things that as a pattern I've noticed people are uncomfortable with in Shakespeare. Like it's a lot of, you know, like Falstaff gets beaten up and like kind of humiliated in a really slapstick way that I think people have, I mean, you know, for legit reasons, I guess, an increasing discomfort with as like a form of comedy, Mm -hmm. obviously, like you really see it with Malvolio. I think, I mean, you don't really see it with comedy of errors because if you're uncomfortable with that, you just can't do the play. (laughs) Um, Well, right. I was going to (laughs) say, yeah, but and then like the other, the other element is um, like the malapropisms. I think I've noticed that I, it has been years since I've seen a hostess quickly who's actually been played for lack of a better word correctly. Yes. yes. In that she misspeaks constantly and is not supposed to be aware of it. And it's supposed to be like the, not to like be like Shakespeare's intentions, but like in this case, I'm really confident oh. in stating Shakespeare's intentions. Me too. Me too. And, you know, just uh, speaking as a director, you know, it's uh, one of the things that I think I can kind of put to that is because the whole thing, I said Muppets earlier, but honestly, with the violence and the slapstick, like the whole thing has such Looney Tune logic and Looney Tune and Looney Tune stakes. But the thing is, it's like you should feel if it's done quote unquote correctly. I think thing one, you should feel no more worried for Falstaff when he's like getting the shit clobbered out of him than you do for like Bugs Bunny. Like he's going to be okay. He's going to go boing and then sort of like spring back to form. He's okay. Like that's not how the world works. And um, the thing about quickly, I so agree with you. There's, and there's a whole tier of people in this play and a bunch of the plays where actors are um, for I think understandable reasons, but also maybe not. Um, I think actors are really, really reluctant to just let the character be a little bit stupid. Yes. And the thing is, like a lot of people in Shakespeare are intentionally written <laughs> a little bit stupid. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you should figure it out because it doesn't play unless you let them just be dumb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really it. It's, I mean, and that, that is what shines through so clearly. And I don't know if it's coming from directors or actors when I see it with hostess quickly, but it's like they want yeah. her to be like a businesswoman or something. It's like, no, she, let she her be dumb. <laughs> just, I mean, like, I don't have any quotes of hers pulled right now, but she's continually, I mean, any man knows where he, where he can have me, like. (laughs) TBT. And also, like, pour some out, what a legend. But, like, the thing is, she's, she's lovable because of that. And the thing is, like, that's, that's okay. And it's not, I don't think that that's sexist, because there are so many, especially the kind of low comedy worlds of Shakespeare, both the plays in which Mistress Quickly appears, you know, all the plays in which Mistress Quickly appears, all of the bar people. It's not just she's a woman and she's stupid. And so we should try and avoid that. It's like everybody here is stupid. Bardolph <laughs> is a moron. Like, like, get, yeah. you know, we kind of have to get over it. And, and in this play, we also have the counterbalance of. Mm, yes. Uh, Mistress Page and Mistress Ford, who are completely in control of themselves in the situation at completely. all times. Yeah. Yeah. And who, you know what it made me think of a bit was the conversation that we had about Love's Labor's Lost and about the ways in which the women, people fall into a trap sometimes of wanting the women in that play to be hurt by the way that the boys are 
sort of trying to have them, you know what I mean? And it's like that thing of like people, you actually ruin the play by asking the women to take the situation more seriously than the play takes it. And this is the same thing. Yes. And I wonder, maybe that can um, move us into act two a little bit, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because I think the one thing that can be taken seriously and in the versions of this play, I've seen work really well allowed to be taken seriously is the relationship between Mistress Page, Mistress Ford and her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, because it turns really out that like mm-hmm. the engine of the play moving forward once we get into act two is not so mm-hmm. much like Will Falstaff seduce these women. We know he won't. Right. Um, who will end up with Anne Page? We are beginning to suspect it will be neither of these guys. Um, yeah. It's like Will Ford managed to catch his wife in a perceived infidelity in a way that might actually cause problems because he's so jealous and so ready to suspect her. And she's like genuinely really, um, she gets like sort of some moments when she's talking to Mistress Page about it, where she like expresses that like, this is really difficult and like a kind of hurtful state of affairs that her husband doesn't trust her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like, to just sort of, like, pin this on the board of our ongoing conversation about, like, how is heterosexuality meant to look in the play? Like, what are we, like, what does it look like, actually? And it's interesting because um, you're so right that, like, Falstaff is kind of aiming at these two couples sort of indiscriminately. But in a way, it's really interesting. I think people think of it as a piece of symmetry, but actually it's a contrast. One couple handles it really differently than the other. And it's interesting that Paige, the pages are very chill and M- Master Page is not worried about it at all. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I don't know. It's just interesting because that's another, yeah, I mean, Ford, I'm trying to find it because I didn't pull the right text, but Ford I mean, the places where we start to notice how deep his concerns are, are direct address. And he's the only person in that kind of set, domestic set of people that gets any direct address. Yeah, it's really really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I mean, I think it's so, it's such an interesting play in light of some of the other like toxic heterosexuality plays we've talked about, like Othello, I think at one extreme end. Mm And much to do about nothing mm-hmm. kind of creeping closer towards mm-hmm. the like maybe everything is okay mm-hmm. despite the toxicity mm-hmm. and winter's and this, tale too i suppose in that. winter's tale yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. in this play it's so just like what if that fear was completely absurd like i think even like mm-hmm. winter's tale and much ado sort of entertain this kind of plausible deniability and this feeling of like how can you know though Like, isn't it sort of legit that you feel you can never know? And this play is just like, but you can know. Yeah, you can know. And it is significant that, again, you know, in terms of how is heterosexuality portrayed and meant to look, one of these marriages is okay and not at all threatened by this. And one of them isn't. And, And what's great about it, and actually very modern in a way, is that the story of the play is how that man's jealousy is out of all proportion and makes him faintly ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's like the play is having a sort of joke at Mr. Ford, you know, and it's interesting, right? Because it's like he... um, You had a thought. Go ahead. Well, it was just, I think it's so interesting that this play that is um, purportedly about, as you sort of said, an, an affair is in fact driven narratively by two 
same sex pairs of people scheming. So on the one hand, we have Mistress Page and Mistress Ford who kind of see this as an opportunity or come to see this as an opportunity, first of all, to kind of shame Falstaff out of this behavior in the future and kind of spare future women from his attentions. And then also it kind of becomes like, maybe we can also kind of shame Ford out of Mm -hmm. his jealousy. Um, It becomes this kind of broader project that isn't really about their honor or their chastity directly. It's sort of about the community's Mm -hmm. kind of relationship to these two men. And then on the other hand, Ford in his jealousy disguises himself as Mr. Brooke and goes to Falstaff and is basically like, I'm in love with Ford's wife. If you can seduce her first as a favor to me, I'll pay you. And then like, you know, then I get to, I can sleep with her too, because we'll know that she's, you know, loose. Um, And so once again, the kind of sexual relationship gets sublimated into these two same-sex pairs instead. And Mm. that's where all the plot and all the conversation, all the action happens where they build up to the kind of then slapstick, completely desexualized scenes of Falstaff showing up and before he can get going, getting tricked. Right, right. No, that's so brilliant. That's so brilliant. And yeah, the only, you're right that the only thing that the play treats seriously, the only kind of pockets of something that feels almost sinister is Ford's musing out loud to himself and to the audience really. And it's funny though, too, because like some of his language, he has a, um, a line jumped out at me that I'm going to paraphrase badly where he's like, I would rather trust a Welsh dude with my stuff and a French dude with my other stuff than my wife with herself. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. He has some really intense language and that I have seen played quite intensely. I mean, like almost kind of to comic effect, how serious he's being, but it is. Yes. No, go for it. Oh no. Well, I was going to say that like the whole thing about the, if you push his intensity far enough it does become like I think you can take it seriously and then it does become this kind of joke that the play is having at his expense I listened to a radio version of this to prepare for this week as I've been doing with the plays that I don't know as well because I like to hear it and the actor who was playing Ford and the one that I just listened to um this is to jump ahead but he has a line in act four where he says my jealousy is reasonable but the actor playing it screamed it so it was so funny yeah. because it's just a man going my jealousy is reasonable and he just like shouted it and it was really funny. But like, I think it is like interesting because like mm-hmm. jealousy is always dangerous in Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes. Like, you know, he has so many plays where, mm-hmm. I mean, like I, I have, I, you know, this theory, I guess, where it's like the most important difference between a comedy and a tragedy is whether jealousy gets resolved mm-hmm. or not. Like, mm-hmm. do women get believed or not. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what tragedy hinges on in like so many Shakespeare plays. And so it's like, I get, it is like interesting to have this kind of threatening idea get Mm -hmm. so (laughs) diffused, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like one of my favorite sort of actor actors, sorry, directors here in London is a a woman named Blanche McIntyre who does mostly classical and Shakespeare stuff. Um, and I remember seeing a production of hers of the comedy of errors. That was the best version of that play I've ever seen the first time I've ever liked it. Mm. Um, and it was really funny. There was like a whole scene where they were slapping someone with a fish, like, you know, (laughs) 
the energy yeah. you require. Yeah, um, but also the scenes where Adriana, because it's if you don't know the play, there's a whole thing with twins getting mixed up. And so the wife of one twin can't figure out why her husband appears <laughs> to be like treating her so badly and ignoring her when in fact it's his twin. Stranger. Um, yeah. <laughs> and just in this one scene with like a really light and deft touch, like Adriana's feelings about that were allowed to also be taken seriously. And it yeah. didn't make the play less funny. And it didn't do the sort of hostess quickly thing of being like, we don't want this woman to be ridiculous. Like she was also ridiculous, but she also sort of got this shading of like, and also it really sucks. My husband suddenly won't talk to me. And I yeah. think that that's what you kind of can get with Mistress Ford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you get this kind of, um, well, what are we going to do about it? The engine of the plot is these two women figuring it out for each other. You know what I yeah. mean? Which I really like. It's like, it has the same, it has a deeper note to it than say the girls in Love's Labor's Lost, who, as we were talking about, you know, the best version of that story is when they're like, let's just like, Let's serve it back to them and make fun of them and it'll be great. And this is also that, but it does have the kind of more mature sort of base note of like, like you say, let's, um, let's teach the community something about yeah. this kind of man and this kind of man. And we can have a laugh while doing it, yeah. but actually the lesson's quite serious. And also like it's the lesson is like for and about each other. There's a line that for so I didn't put down and I can't find, but it's something like they're like walking around and somebody was like, I think if we died, you two would get married of, yeah, of the two wives. Of them. Yeah. Yes. And you're just like, yes, like they are the best and only kind of real friendship in this whole play. Because the other thing that happens in act one that I uh, forgot to mm -hmm. mention, but I think it's sort of thematically relevant is like the other kind of disruption. We get again, this like disruption to the homosocial mm. order when, when upon deciding to seduce the two women, Falstaff's kind of cronies abandon him. Cause for some reason, this is a step too far. Like, <laughs> yeah. Bardolph, notorious drunkard is like, <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. Like pistol crazy person is like, crazy no, no, no. Person. I'm not going to be a go. I'm not going to be a pander. Like that's too much. That's, but it is still the sense of like in every, at every mm -hmm. other turn, as we've so often seen, like the introduction of heterosexuality into a, a crew of lads breaks it apart. Yes. But, um, yeah, and even true. we kind of see it's sort it with, of also just like, we, we even kind of see it with, say it's like a scheme they can't take part in. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, but that's mm -hmm. always it, isn't it? It's like only yeah. one guy can end up with a girl. But then I was going to say it even kind of happens with Paige and Ford as well. And they're kind of divergent reactions to Bardolph and Nim taking revenge on Falstaff by revealing his seduction plans to the two husbands. And Ford even says like, Paige is crazy. Like I'm going to, I need to deal with this if he's not going to kind of take this seriously. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it's like, I'm just thinking about the dramatic irony that is sort of employed in that type of situation when husbands speak to the audience about their feelings and we know the things that we know and how different it feels in this play than in say Othello. You know yeah. what I mean? Because obviously Othello has similar, like, you know, Othello, Leontes, they talk to the audience and they're like, I really have profound feelings that my wife is cheating on me. And the sense of dramatic irony is, it's really, it's interesting because in those plays as an audience member, you feel like, oh my God, 
you poor, you fool dude, something horrible. You're going to do something horrible for no reason. (laughs) I wish I could tell you. And then in this play, it's funny because it, it, I don't feel the same sense of impending danger, but I feel, I feel there is an ick that's happening, but it's like for him, I feel like, oh, oh, dude, this is such a bad look. Yeah. It's a bad look. I mean, I think this is like a gross oversimplification, but it's like on a very surface level, the one thing that Mistress Page and Mistress Ford have that Desdemona and Hero don't Mm -hmm. really have is a social standing and a same sex confidant who is of their own age and class. Yes. Yeah. And honestly, like, that's what safety is comprised of, I suppose. Because yeah, the thing is, I think they, so. If Mistress For- Ford didn't have Mistress Page to talk to. Right, like what would she do? She wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to kind of pull off these schemes. And obviously like Hero has Beatrice, but like there's, you know, they're not, they there's have no social power mm. as Beatrice discusses. So like it is something, I mean, you're sort of like, you ca- in other plays you have to sort of sweep female friendship off the stage because it's too (laughs) not to like be all girl boss but it's like it's too powerful right but it would like it would disrupt the shittiness of the action that men are undertaking yeah but it is like a pair of married women just have too much Mm -hmm. like power in a community yeah to be threatened in the way that like unmarried women or married women who are isolated can be Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah and that's really, so that's the sort of substance of act three is yes. everybody is kind of getting into the meat of the, of the journey where the men are diverged in their responses to this. And the women are in the middle of like united front. Um, let's pull some, let's pull some funny tricks mode. Yeah. Well, I think Paige and Ford are pulled apart, but like we said, Ford as Brooke and Falstaff have this weird alliance. Like yeah. Nim and Pistol are still kind of working together. And then True. two, so there's a, there's almost a duel between Hugh, Sir Hugh, the Welsh parson and Sir Caius, the French doctor, um, because Sir Caius wants to marry Anne Page and he's angry at Sir Hugh for arranging for her to marry Slender. And which again, is just like another amazing example of like the sublimation of one's feelings about a heterosexual relationship onto the nearest man. Yes, like why, what so does Sir funny. Hugh have to do with this? Why are you dueling him? At least dual Slender. Like, it's so, <laughs> but like, and so then they unite because they're getting revenge on the host for supporting mm-hmm. a different suitor. And it again, just becomes like, all these guys losing track of like the women that their disputes are supposedly about in favor of like hanging out with each other instead. Yeah. And it's just all like, I mean, again, Looney Tune. I mean, like underneath it. And it's, of course, it's also just Shakespeare being like, wouldn't it be funny if a guy with a really bad French accent and a guy with a really bad Welsh accent was like, it's just such a, like, a conversation, it's such a like set piece. Watch me do accents. It's I, so funny. <laughs> so the globe did Mary wives again, a couple summers ago. I don't remember now before the pandemic. And mm-hmm. that scene was just like, it was a scene of two people going, what? 
wait, yeah. what? <laughs> like <laughs> over and over. Yeah. And the thing is, the joke is good. And I mean, I found myself <laughs> listening to it today, just like absolutely cackling. And also Slender, um, dumb little gay boy. Um, Slender is off in the corner, every three lines, completely unrelated to all of the rest of the language going, oh, and Paige. We'll talk more about Anne Page probably in Acts 4 and 5 as we move ahead here, but like there is something really funny to me and actually kind of like confident and self-assured about how um, I think it's, I think Anne Page's absence is notable to the point of comic absurdity. Like the fact that like every conversation is about Anne Page and she shows up like twice, you know, but like she shows up so glancingly in the beginning. Like as a director, I started thinking about all the ways you could make that funny. Yeah. Of just the fact that like this girl's barely in the play. She's in a play that's happening over here somewhere else. And what we're watching is all the stupid people. It's literally wild when we finally get a scene with her in Fenton, her actual suitor. And I'm like, there's verse, there's writing verse all of a sudden, like, oh my God. And then, and then she's like, they're starting to actually kind of get some flirting on. She's like, here, come here. And then they walk away and go and do it off to the side where we can't hear. It's That's so exactly right. like Shakespeare just being like, this play yeah, is Shakespeare's not like, about it's not romance. That. That's right. It's just about these stupid ass clowns. And you know, what's really funny too, is that while everybody's parents are drawn into their own domestic dramas, which is what this is about, you know, this sort of, you know, the women and Falstaff and the husbands and all of their own things, like they fundamentally miss everyone fundamentally misses the seriousness of the heterosexuality that is slowly developing between Anne and Fenton which is actually happening in that other playoff stage it's literally it's literally they wouldn't know a couple if it was right in front of them if it was and they are right in front of them it's just so funny to me because it's like heterosexuality is happening in the room in front of you and nobody notices no because they don't you, actually know what it looks like. All they can conceive of it as is something that you talk about yeah. and use as a token mm-hmm. to establish your friendship with yeah. your social peers. Right. And you know, what's so interesting too, is I was thinking about these two essential marriages, the, the Fords and the Pages. And um, the Fords obviously have the problems that we've talked about. You know, um, Mr. Ford is like having, you know, a kind of existential crisis in the corner uh, this whole time. And it's alarming but the pages it's interesting to me that their thing is that the husband and wife have separate private schemes about how to marry their daughter that they have not not only communicated to each other that they are deliberately deceiving each other in right so it's it's like like, (laughs) wow yeah it's like they know enough to know the other wouldn't like it and their solution is to be like I just won't tell him Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll get into the exact mechanics in act five about how that goes down, but it's just really funny to me that the, like you say, Shakespeare is so cheeky about it. I think like the, the actual love story that is happening in this play is sort of makes itself visible in tiny glimpses and then flits away and then leaves a gap into which people just project their own shit, but they have no idea the thing that's actually happening. Yeah. And I think that in act three and especially in act four, it becomes really striking because Fenton starts showing up more 
And we get, mm-hmm. I find a very funny reference to Prince Hal because Mr. Page does not approve of Fenton because yes. he's friends with Prince Hal, which is just like, what time period is this taking place in? No one knows. Dude, right? Is that the one? I wrote that down too. Is that where he says the gentleman is of no having? He kept company with a wild prince and points. And also this, he says he's of too high a region. He knows too much. <laughs> I love it. Whereas on the other hand, Mistress Page likes Dr. Caius because he has court connections, which I think we're given to assume are a lie. I mean, in that he's an absolute lunatic charlatan, I guess. <laughs> like, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But um, in Act 4 and Act 5, Fenton starts showing up more, but we Anne doesn't. He's showing up more to confer mostly with the host of the local inn, the garter, who's kind of his confidant and ally mm-hmm. in getting Anne and him set up which is why the other two guys get mad at him blah 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 there's like a weird thing where they arrange for some germans to steal his horses it's very confusing it's Um, incomprehensible that part (laughs) yes uh (laughs) but um so once again it's like this our central heterosexual relationship gets entirely discussed through and as a scheme between these two guys and it's really like yeah I think not to move too far ahead, but whatever, we've kind of abandoned linearity, which is fitting <laughs> for this play. We've abandoned all form. Um, yeah. You know, I, I found myself thinking about the scene in um, Romeo and Juliet where like, you know, it's the balcony scene and <laughs> there's this little aside that people always cut where one of them is like, Romeo, I think it's like, or Juliet, somebody's like, how will you get up here? And Romeo's like, don't worry, I'll get a ladder. And actually you have a similar exchange in comedy of errors too, where someone's like, I'll get us a ladder. And like, it's like the people who are making the scheme kind of coming up with the plan together. And then we kind of see him go to the nurse and be like, nurse, can you get a ladder? But in this one, it's like, he comes to Fenton and he's like, me and Anne have made a plan and here's how I'm gonna, you know, pluck her away in disguise at this, you know, fairy dance thing. And it's like, but we didn't get the scene where him and Anne discussed that. Like we didn't get the Hermia and Lysander like, Okay, so we'll this meet in the woods run away. and yeah. run away. It's like we only get the part where it's about him and the host coming up with a scheme together. And it's just yeah. so, I mean, it's, you're right, though. It's pointed. Like, it is so yeah. just deliberate and so complete, her exclusion, as to have to be on purpose. I think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. And just the fact that, like, there's something again that feels very kind of modern sitcom about the yeah. fact that in the midst of all of these, the sort of farcical slamming doors and running in and out and people in baskets and everything going on, the fact that both of Anne's parents think of her as this child, but also this kind of token that can be passed to yeah. whomever they want, they have no concept of her own agency. And I think that there would be a really, there's something attractive to me as a director about the sequence in which Anne gets to sort of reveal the fact that she like did her own marriage. Thank you very much yeah. to both of her parents. <laughs> I know you almost yeah. want to like not ever see her face. Like it's like you wish you, you almost want her to literally never be in the play until the very end yeah. when she's like, by the way, I've been having, Hi. I've been in Romeo and Juliet, the happy version off stage. Yeah. 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 It's so funny. Yeah, and everyone's just flabbergasted because we've been so distracted by absolute tomfoolery yeah. that we haven't even been noticing. But yeah, I think I think that what we're pointing at that's like is so funny about it is that if it's pointed, okay, like the play really pointedly is not about the heterosexual love story 
at all because the, the love story, I mean, like, it's not what we're watching. So what are we watching? It's like what we talked about with two gentlemen, this thing of like, okay, well, we're not watching a love story. We're watching the story of two friends who love each other in a gay way, betray each other and apologize. Yeah. And what we're watching here is like, I guess a community try to reckon with notions of jealousy and possession kind of in its heart, in its core. Yeah. And then kind of like, you know, finding a way through it. Yeah. But I think it's also what we're watching is when the sort of hyper commodified kind of sense Mm -hmm. like of marriage, Mm -hmm. like the kind of pre-companionate marriage idea Mm -hmm. of what a kind of marital alliance is for is stripped mm-hmm. down to, as you say, a token. Like mm-hmm. what, what we're watching is when you take away the trappings of romance, what is left is marriage as a symbol, mm. as I keep saying, of your affection and esteem and trust for mm. if you're a man, other mm. men, if you're a woman, other mm. a woman, other women. Like it's Yeah, it's sort of like when you take away the love and sex for marriage, what you're actually left with Mm -hmm. is the way it's about love and trust and money between uh, peers instead. And And it's sort of like, this is what marriage is. Marriage is these three guys being like, I love you so much. I'm going to set you up with this girl. Yeah. But then also like in the couples, like once marriages have been made, it's also about like, the fabric, the social fabric of a society. It's about like the rules by which we live together. Yes. And it's about like agreeing not to break them. Yes. You know, I mean, it's that thing of like what marriage is, is a contract about how we exist as adults in a town. Yeah. And I think that that is why they have to kind of defeat Falstaff because it's exactly. like, no, dude, you don't understand. You're causing problems by yeah. even attempting this. Like the fact that these women don't mm-hmm. want you isn't enough mm-hmm. to stop you. And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then, you know, if, if events accelerate. I'm, I'm wanting to kind of, I have a couple of specific things in act four I wanted to kind of talk about, but yeah. before we leave act three completely, I'm trying to, to remember if there's anything else that's important. I mean, I also wrote down the hilarious uh, Mr. Ford line, this tis to be married, this tis to have linen and buck baskets. Yes. So this is one of the famous scenes of the play where they smuggle Falstaff out because they arrange for Ford to be coming home while Falstaff is like in the house. And so they have to smuggle him out in a basket of dirty laundry and he gets tossed in the Thames and he gives an incredibly long speech to Ford as Brooke about the indignity he undergoes. Um, It's incredibly, it's incredibly silly, but yeah, the, the two sort of main, um, the two main capers that um, mistresses Ford and Paige um, pull on Falstaff are, yeah, A, the dirty laundry one, and then B, the old woman of Branford, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah, well, let's move it because that's act four. So, oh, yeah. Shall we just press let's, forward? Let's I read press on. the other day, and I didn't have time to uh-huh. like fully fact check this, that this is the only case of onstage male to female cross-dressing in Shakespeare. The only case textually of male to female cross-dressing in Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens in the sequence is once again, it's the same setup, but this time to kind of get him out of the house, they dress him up as 
the old woman of Brentford or Brainford, depending on how they've chosen to write the name. Yeah. Um, and but it turns out that like this is a known person. They're like, oh, she's a witch. She's this horrible, fat old lady, and everyone hates her, especially Mr. Ford. And at the very sight of her, he beats her up and chases her out of the house. So he has the double indignity of being dressed as a woman and being beaten up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on with this sequence. I guess we should really pause here for a second. Yeah, I think it's we should. Like the women, so mistresses Port, Port, Port and Page, yeah. mistresses Port and Page are um, doing the thing that they do, which they also did in the laundry basket scenario where Falstaff is hidden. And then they're like coming up with ideas about what to do with him while he's in the room like they're performing kind of for his benefit and they're like what should we do with him I don't know let's get the basket and then he like careens out and it's like not the basket not again <laughs> and then um mistress Ford whose house they're in is like oh I've just had a notion the old fat woman of Brentford left her dress upstairs <laughs> which is like okay why <laughs> but sure I will, I will note that I think as with Much Ado, one of the things people struggle with in this play when producing it, and actually I'd be curious to hear how you'd resolve this problem is like Mistress Page and Mistress Ford have these long scenes where they are acting for Falstaff's benefit. And I think every, like many productions I see really struggle with like (laughs) where to pitch the stakes of that, because on the one hand, they're not actually worried about the things that are they have to present as problems but also like if it's a 10 minute scene of them acting badly like that's Mm -hmm. very boring and not funny it's too long for a bad improv yeah yeah so it's I think I really see a lot of um production struggle with how to pitch much like how people struggle to do the second fake wooing scene with Hero and Ursula because we've just had that exact joke one scene earlier yeah they're sort of like how do you how long can you put up with like but Mistress Ford your husband is coming. Oh no. He's coming. Like, yeah, I mean, no, totally. I, it's a really, it's an interesting problem. I mean, I think you just completely speaking off the cuff here, I think you would get away with it by making it a, as fast as possible, because I think a key to the sort of maintaining the high wire is like the chaos of the moment has to continually be funny, both in a textual way, but also in a physical way. And so like wherever, whatever place Falstaff is sort of smushing himself into can also be funny in the background, you know, like you would have to figure out ways to make the physical life as funny as the text and make it all fast. Yeah. I think is basically how you would have to do it. But, um, but push comes to shove what they do is get him in drag very quickly but also badly as he's getting hustled out in a minute by ford somebody is it sir hugh is like i don't like when a woman has a beard that woman had a huge beard under her veil and you're like oh yeah and everybody's like (laughs) i hate when a woman has a huge beard says yeah no it's it's small beard is fine it's It's the huge beard that really gets him huge beard we can't we can't we can't do it but no it's um and it's weird because it the premise of the scene is that Mr. Ford has a long-standing marked aversion (laughs) like violent hatred of this like old witchy woman yeah and I think again like this I think is where people get a bit like <laughs> yep. <laughs> like it's the combination of like the sexism and the fat jokes and the witch jokes and you're yep. beating an old lady that it's just again, <laughs> but I think you hit you've 
Yes. You've solved the problem where it's like it's Looney Tunes. It's it's yeah. like uh it's Yosemite Sam you know being I mean? dressed as yeah, a woman it's... and Bugs Bunny beating him up. Like yes, yeah. It's cartoon sounds. The whole play functions on like, you know, a water pistol and a rubber mallet. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like it's yeah. it's prop gags, you yeah. know. You've just reminded mm-hmm. me we're gonna keep we keep bringing up this play. Maybe we'll have to do it next. Um, oh, we no. won't do that to you. Of <laughs> this town is full of jugglers. Okay, I was gonna say it before. <laughs> I was gonna say it before. Um, we should should we wait to tell that story when we get to comedy bears, or now that we've said it, should we just now that we said it? I think we should tell it and then we can tell okay. it again. Which is basically there's okay, a, we'll I don't it. even like I can't remember the company that did it. Like I don't remember anything it about was it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So ACT, we saw like a recording of this when we were both in Shakespeare class in college and it was a circus themed comedy of errors, which is very funny and very silly. Um, and great. seemed to be entirely building to the line where they've just arrived in the new town. And someone's like, you have to be careful. This town is full of jugglers. And then everybody on stage just whips out some balls and starts juggling. I also remember that this guy speaking looks right at the audience and it's like, oh, stuff, this town, this city is full of jugglers. And it was like, we, we died that day. It that was, was two years ago. And we've been ghosts ever since. Like, honestly, yeah. it, it, it ended my life. It, yeah, it was yeah, incredibly. Yeah. And that's, that's like the energy this play needs also. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It has to have a really, cause that's, I mean, not to just like really think about it now, but no, like but do it. the thing of this city, the thing of this city is full of jugglers is that like, you have to, <laughs> this is one of those plays where I do think like what I was just talking about, you do have to find a vocabulary theatrically where physical comedy is as much the thing as any of the language. And it has to be like, you have to live in a world where that's what's happening. Yes. And I think that not again, if you're going to take it too seriously, I'll take it too seriously too. Like the project, the scholarly project that I'm working on right now is about consent. And I think that like the Mm. thing that I'm really thinking about is like how modern audiences or if can like buy into how seriously a given play is taking concerns about consent. And this is a play where we are not meant, as we said before, we are not meant to be worried for Mistress Page mm-hmm. and Mistress Ford. We are not supposed to genuinely fear they're being made uncomfortable by Falstaff's advances in any way. Like, and I think you just have to do as a director and actor, like whatever you need to do to like convey that to the audience by any means, just like they are yeah. not scared and they're not upset. That's right. Yeah. They're not scared of him. And the stakes are of a social nature. Like we've sort of been talking about, I think I have two. So now that we're in act four, um, well, I have, I, there's stuff I want to ask you about, but should we tie up the old woman of of Brentford slash Brainford first? Yeah. Let's finish this off. I mean, so I brought up the, um, only male to female cross-dressing thing, both because mm. it's interesting. And also like, I think it's a really mm. important part of how Falstaff as a character kind of across the three plays that he appears in gets feminized. And yeah. I think um, sort of this image of him dressed as a woman is one that resonates in the Henry Four plays, even though it doesn't happen in them. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think it's not kind of, I mean, it's, yeah, the, the way that like Falstaff as a queer figure kind of, Hmm. culturally I think that this image is part of it that's important to say yeah I do think that's important to say and you know in a way 
it also, it does something, but one of the things it does is further neutralize him as a sexual threat. You know what I mean? Like, I think it further reinforces the idea that his designs on these women romantically are not what we're supposed to be thinking about. Yeah. You know? Um, Yeah. No, it's a really interesting situation. And I do think in terms of violence, you know, because I was in a workshop process, a brief uh, sort of reading and workshop process that involved this play a few years ago and in discussion with actors and stuff, the thing that did come up, the sticking point was mostly this. Um, And it was interesting because people's responses turned out to be uh, more negative in that particular room towards this play than I had thought certainly more negatively than it struck me this time. And one of the things around it was like, yeah, all the jokes about the foreign accents, like, is it really, is it really that funny to just sort of like make fun of foreign people's accents? And then he also beats up this old fat lady who's really a fat man. And, you know, and it was all of that stuff. And I do think there are totally degrees to which that's valid. But so moving forward in act four, Here's, here's some things I want to put on the table. So as I said before, the, you know, my jealousy is reasonable, screamed Mr. For- Mr. Ford, you know, very, is <laughs> very sure you're funny. Like stamping like, his feet. I think I've totally, done that it's way. Reasonable. It's very <laughs> funny. It, it can be so funny. And I think it's worth saying too, that like Mr. Ford is a much better role than Mr. Page. Like he does so much more acting. Like there's a lot of like, it's a really interesting, it's an interesting part. Like he's very yeah. active and like his, it can be very silly. I've seen it done very funny too. But so here's these two pieces of text. Um, when so pretty quickly what happens after all of this shenanigans is that the ladies are basically like we should tell them we should tell the husbands what's going on and then get everybody above board and then we can all decide what to do about it so they do that and the couples reconcile in act four and then move forward and scheme together about what to do about it ford's apology is very sincere. It's an interesting piece of text. He says to Mistress Ford, pardon me, wife, henceforth do what thou wilt. I will. I rather will suspect the son with cold than thee with wantonness. Now doth thy honor stand in him that was of late a heretic, as firm as faith. Yeah. Which is a very sincere apology. Yeah. And I want to kind of... Um, contrast it by asking a question to you about a piece of text that sort of shocked me and I was like what um Falstaff after having the shit kicked out of him is at the inn uh at the garter complaining to Mistress Quickly about everything that he's suffered at the hands of the scheme and Mistress Quickly says and have not they suffered? Yes, I warrant, speciously one of them, Mistress Ford Goodhart, is beaten black and blue that you cannot see a white spot about her. Yeah. What? I think, now, as I recall, they have gotten Mistress Quickly in on this scheme earlier because they needed her they, to like the ladies the ladies i think that they yes. have they have yeah brought her in because you know i mean everybody's constantly getting other people to pass messages for them because god forbid <sighs> so you just go schemes. like talk to somebody um never so i mean like i that's not true is it no i interpret that as like playing into because part of what they're doing is playing up for false staff like oh my gosh we have to smuggle you out because her husband is such a nightmare 
is so violent. He's so yeah. violent to, you know, he'll kill you, he'll beat her. And like, you know, part of when they mm -hmm. have to kind of play a scene, a love scene before getting interrupted, it's very much just like, <laughs> it's just so hard. My husband's so jealous. He doesn't yeah. care about me at all. So I, I interpret that as hostess quickly okay. being instructed to sell the story the line for him yeah yeah, yeah. that's great and just because i thought it bared clarification you know just because yeah. it's like no i don't think we're ever given any reason to think that that's that true. that's true yeah well and i was like because the 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 reconciliation between the or you know the kind of getting everybody on board between the husbands and the wives is very sincere and very yeah. like and also like pretty quickly they all successfully turn toward like okay then how are we together gonna get yeah. what's what yeah no but i mean i do i mean again i do think it's interesting that it's like we don't lose mm. track entirely of this specter of like what mm. if mr what ford yeah, what if he was that kind of guy, though? That's Think right. what Falstaff would be doing if this was a world where she did need to be afraid. That's right. That's right. And like, what? yeah, it's like this weird little shadow of different stakes of like what it is in A Winter's Tale or in Othello, you know, of kind yeah. of like if it, it could be. And it's a combination of the world we're in in this play and also the suitor that Falstaff is. I think yes. that like, no, no, you know, it's a combo of those two things. Yeah, but, but I also it, think it is like, it, it ties back into like, this becomes a community project. And what they do is they decide yeah. like, we're gonna humiliate Falstaff one more time because it is, there is this ghost stakes of, yeah. he can't go around doing this because one of these days he will do it to a husband who is like what we're pretending Mr. Who Ford would. is like. Hurt who her. would yeah. yeah hurt his wife even mm -hmm. for someone as buffoonish as Falstaff even if she wasn't interested exactly exactly so yeah it's a really interesting moment ghost stakes is exactly it you know it's just this funny little whisper of like in a different you know play. just a little in a different play but in this play I love what you said about yeah it becomes a community project and the community projects all converge as they are want to do <laughs> at everyone i mean it becomes like the christmas pageant like sir hugh is like i'll, I'll instruct the children in how to play fairies and i'll be a devil and so what they're going to do is they're going to tell falstaff to go into the woods to meet with mistress ford but there's also this local legend of a fairy called hern the hunter who you're not supposed to go in the woods at night because he'll pinch you um and so they're going to lure Falstaff in and then all the kids dressed as fairies are going to pinch him until he confesses that he has been like illicitly seducing married women and like admits that he's taken all this money from Mr. Brooke and like just, you know, purges himself of his sins. And then, yeah. I mean, even from the beginning, it's like, and then we'll forgive him and it'll be fine. Yeah. And yeah. in the midst of yeah. this, the two pages have arranged for one of them is arranged for yes. Anne to be dressed in white, and that will be the signal to her suitor. The other has secretly gone behind her. She's gone behind her husband's back and be like, no, Anne, you'll wear green, and that will be the signal for her suitor. And Anne has separately schemed with Fenton, we learn yeah. in advance, to do neither of those things. Yeah, yeah, this is the, yeah, the young, the young heterosexual lovers taking care of it, taking matters into their own hands. And so just to be clear, it's, it's Mr. Page wants her to marry Slender and Mr. Yes. Page wants her to marry Dr. Caius. Yes. Right, right. So they're in the mix in the woods here as well. And the fact that, like you said, it's the Christmas pageant and it's just like everybody and I kept picturing everybody in like a, 
out in like a very suburban park like everyone sneaks out of there it's like it's set in a cul-de-sac like yeah everyone's... I'm picturing not to get like so like a reference no one listening to this understand but like I'm picturing literally like Lithia Park in Ashland yes that's 100% what it is. Yes. Yeah. It's just like everybody in like a nice neighborhood park overnight. Like someone's like, it's just, it's so funny. And again, there's something really charming to me about how domestic all of how community, all of it is. This was like, it's like an episode of Parks and Rec. This Yes. That was genuinely before when you were like, it's like a smart sitcom. Parks and Rec was the thing that like, not that Parks and Rec is like the smartest sitcom of all time, but like in that it is fundamentally really good hearted. Um, But yeah, yeah, about the unity of a community. really. Yeah, exactly. And about solving community problems. And I think Mm -hmm. speaking of speed, which you mentioned before, Act 5 is so striking because you're like four or five in a row, like, eight line scenes of like Very different short. groups being like okay you do this you do this let's go new scene new group and I'm gonna do this and you'll do also, this great right and they also build in a in like a sitcom in a continuous way to the same place so part of what you're doing in act five is cutting to overhear this part of the park this part of the park as other people converge and it's honestly so funny that the way that this whole thing ends is fall stuff being surrounded by children chanting, pinch him, pinch him, pinch him. <laughs> because the audio play that I just listened to of this is so funny. I like could not stop laughing at the sort of like the escalation of the children's choir portion of the show. I was like, oh God, this is so much. It's wild. It's, I mean, it is yeah. a truly absurd ending. And I think again, yeah. just like one of these, it's like, you just have to... I just the more and more I just feel like you're right this literally needs to be done by the literal Muppets and that is how you can capture what the energy of all this is 1000% it's literally like I'll do a bonus episode one day where I just cast I cast them all with Muppets (laughs) Muppet Shakespeare (laughs) I was like hmm how would we do Muppet Mary Watts but no it would work it would work amazingly put Um, it on the Instagram I will, will, I'll do it later, um, in my own cursed time, but, um, yeah, it's just like, there's, there's a moment, I didn't write this down because it's neither here nor there, but there's a moment that made me laugh so hard where when it's getting revealed, when Falstaff has no choice, but to sort of realize that he's been had by everybody. And this is all kind of a, a charade to out him and to make fun of him. He has this great line where he's like, I see that I made an ass or whatever. And everybody's like, lol, yes. And then he says, are they not fairies? And then he has this great line that I want to try to find where he's like, I did have a couple of thoughts there that maybe they weren't fairies. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. When when the Globe did it uh, before the pandemic, it was this actor called Pierce Quigley as Falstaff, mm-hmm. who's just like, every role he plays is just complete deadpan that's just like nice. his thing. so it was just like him being like I did it did occur to me that it maybe did yeah it did occur to me maybe they, they were weren't fairies, fairies. <laughs> it's just so funny it is really really funny but so um something else interesting about all this is so we're all making in the woods making fun of fall stuff and secretly Anne Page has run off and gotten married but meanwhile <laughs> Dr. Caius and Slender have grabbed a couple of people that they each respectively think is Anne Page. And then they rock it back into the, into the final scene to be like, 
this person is a is a boy. This is a boy. I know, and I'm pretty sure Caius has accidentally actually married his one, like because uh-huh. uh, Slender's like I almost married her, and then I realized she was a boy. And Caius comes in and is like, I married a boy. I married this boy. We're and married. it's so funny because I was like, wait, hold on. Does this play end in, not only do the straight kids get it together on their own outside the play, but also this play ends in two accidental prank gay marriages. Prank gay marriages. I mean, it is like, it's like Shakespeare. They could have been women. They could have been Anne's friends. The wrong women? Yeah, yeah. but no, no, it's like, no, no. We, we don't want you marrying anyone. And also, sorry, but like, again, as a director, it would just be like, what you could, what you would do, what you could do with Slender and that boy. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that done. I mean, of course, because it's right there. How could yeah, you not take yeah, it? Yeah, he wasn't interested in Anne. Um, no, it is, but it is, again, just like a little, a little extra gay uh, seasoning at the, in the 11th hour there. But again, like just driving home that it's like on some level, what those matches were always about, were about a marriage yeah. between two men. Yes, I think that's actually such a brilliant point to like finally sort of stop and really confront what you've been saying this whole time, which is that like socially the marriage contract is just about male friendship and male advancement and male, you know, kind of bonds. It's and then there are these other kids who sneak back in. And um, interestingly, I found Fenton's language when they come back really interesting where they sort of pop in and this is where you would do the great thing if you'd found a way to never show Anne Page until the final scene, it would actually be hilarious. <laughs> they come in and they're like, hi, we got married. And the parents are like, oh, what? And then Fenton says to each of them, to all of them, Fenton says, you would have married her most shamefully when there was no proportion held in love. The truth is she and I long since contracted and now so sure that nothing can dissolve us. And this deceit, this deceit loses the name of craft, of disobedience, of unduteous title, since therein she doth uh, evitate and shun a thousand irreligious cursed hours, which forced marriage would have brought upon her. Yeah. And then both the parents are like, like nice. oh, well, yeah, legit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and they're <laughs> both like, good. oh, fine. Is it, I think it's Mistress Page who has that great line where she's like, or it's one of them, where they're like, you know, what must, what can't be avoided must be embraced. Yeah. They're just like, oh, well. Yeah. Great. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, I think it gets back at that idea of, you know, what you said before. It's like, what are the rules by which we live together? And it's like, why would you yeah. make this so hard? Yeah. Like yeah. why, why, and- why deliberately make a scenario where it will be so difficult to uphold those rules of kind of yes. respect and care? Yes. And I think that's why it really feels out of the absolute clown car that we've been traveling in up to this point. It really feels like it really struck me today that Fenton is just speaking a ton of sense, you know, if just the fact that like, actually, like, I love her, but also that would have been a terrible uh, idea, you know, it's like, bad yeah, time. I guess it would. Yeah, yeah, especially having seen, like, you know, given that the, again, like the center of the plot is the contrast between mm-hmm. two marriages and like the problems of when you don't trust each other in a marriage and the differing yeah. stakes that those could have. And obviously the pages have their own version of that in their separate secret marriage plots for Anne, yes. which is also yeah. bad, but sort of as he expresses, mm-hmm. that's not so much bad for the couple as it is bad for Anne. <laughs> bad for her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's almost a sort of like, there's all this worrying and fussing about the rules of heterosexuality and the maneuvering of it. And then in the end, the actual structure of the play is that like, 
well, the real stuff will take care of itself. It's yeah. taking care of itself outside of your eyeline. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, no, go ahead. Well, no, you go. <laughs> you go. Ahead. No, you go. Well, I mean, I was going to say that, like, yeah, it sort of cuts out, as you say, like, lets that take care of itself off stage and then instead says, so what if this time we're interested mm-hmm. in the homosocial? bonds Mm -hmm. that actually continue after marriage rather than like every other kind of Shakespeare comedy where you sort of have to give up one for the other. This is saying like, what if actually you didn't, it just seems like that when you're 20, but when you're, you know, 40, you realize that like you've built new and different forms of this kind of community and these kind of same sex bonds. Yeah. And it is so striking that like, most of the friendships in Shakespeare are had between people who are not yet married. And it's so interesting to what you were just saying, to think about like, this is a whole play. It really does feel like, you know, like the end of this play is that Mistress uh, Ford and, you know, everybody chastise Falstaff publicly, of course, but then it ends with a, with a great speech where they're like, all right, all right. I think we've all maybe learned our lesson. Let's all go back to our house and have a big dinner. Everybody's invited. Even you, Sir John, let's go sit by the fire and have a great time. Yeah. And it does sort of feel like, okay. And then all of the grown up married people went back to their house and had a great dinner. Like, but the last line, we can't resist the sort of body joke to button it, which is, um, you know, yes. Brooke is like, don't worry, Falstaff, you'll keep your promise tonight. Uh, or Ford is like, you'll keep your promise. Mr. Brooke will sleep with Ford's wife, <laughs> which does have this weird effect of like in the last minute, bringing it back around to this mm-hmm. playful promise made between two men rather than yeah. to Ford's You're relationship so right. with his wife. Right. And then they all just sort of exit cackling in a very like, yeah, I don't know. That is really, that is really funny. And you know what that line also does is it's like, it reminds Falstaff of the ways in which he was deceived. And also it reasserts like, I don't know, it, it has the same, it, it reminds me, it, what it actually reminds me of, and I don't know what this means, but it reminds me of the actual third ending of Clue where do you know Clue I've never actually seen it oh my god okay I've seen the flames flames on the side of my face gif Madeline Kahn amazing no it's um the actual ending of Clue is that there's three there's three endings where they're like maybe it was happened this way maybe this way the third ending is um this really nerdy guy whose secret was allegedly that he was a homosexual the whole time and that he was like sort of in hiding because he was in the FBI it well it turns out that he is in the FBI and then like all the cops rush in and because he's been playing gay this whole time the actual last line of the movie is that guy looking at the camera and going now I'm gonna go home and sleep with my wife I mean, it is literally, that is what the last line of the play is, but it's like in a way that makes it about, don't worry, Falstaff, like in a weird way, you didn't even betray me. Yeah. Like you got me, but also you're keeping your promise to your bro. Really? It's like, it's the, it's the Cyrano de Bergerac queerness of like, when you (laughs) are conspiring to, in their case, sleep with the same woman, allegedly, but not for reals. And for the women, like when you're conspiring to dick over the same guy by pretending you mm-hmm. want to both sleep with him. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And sort of, sort I of think like, there is, there's always like a, a vibe in those kind of like erotic machinations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there is something like, it's sort of, I, I don't know why I was thinking about Two Gentlemen so much, but it sort of felt to me like a little bit like the grown-up version of the end of that play, which is where we were like, this is very gay. And now all the kids are like, let's go in and get married and live together. And the end of this play is all these grown married people with the sensibility of like a body 70s sitcom are like, ah, let's all go in and have dinner. Yeah. And like, you know, I don't know. Right. Not that they're Just all going like, to go become swingers, but like you I was know. literally like, that's yeah. There and then there's swingers, but yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, there's just this really like kind of warm communal sense at the end of the yeah. play where nothing anyone has done is so bad that they aren't allowed home for dinner. Back. That's exactly it, and that's the thing about like. And I just, I was still thinking about that thing that you said about the thing that separates a comedy from a tragedy. It, what if it's that? the women get listened to in the comedies and the fact that through their status, through their, as married people, through their friendship with each other, whatever, like we end in such a place of sort of restitution and safety. And I, cause I, I feel like that, what you just said, no one has done anything so terrible that they can't be invited back into the community. I think that's, the quintessentially healing thing about all Shakespeare comedies. Like I feel mm -hmm. that way about, I mean, except for with the potent outliers like Twelfth Night where not everybody's invited to stay, but like, you know, I feel that way about Much Ado. I feel that way about As You Like It. You know, I mean, like the reconstitution of the offenders is a big part of it. But in this play, it's literally textually explicit. It's literally yeah. just like, let's go sit by the fire, even you, Sir John. Yeah, you can all come in. And like, I think, there's something as well in like the fact that like the shape of so many comedies in ways that are like more or less explicitly engaged with is like, it's about mm. the breaking up of one kind of relationship in order to constitute another. You either have to stop being friends with your friend or you have to leave mm. your father. You know, you have to break apart the form of family yeah. that you had before. And we sort of end with the new form in this kind of embryonic, shape of it's just two people it's something mm. very small and intimate and alone and mm -hmm. this gets to end so much more expansively we're not broken off yeah. into our couples to go be by ourselves with our you know one mm -hmm. true love it's like no we we have rebuilt the community and everybody gets to be a part of it and nobody has to kind of rebuild and reshape and break up the family or the friendship they had before yeah um, yeah and also and also all the relationships are richer yeah. Like every, there are no, like nothing has been compromised. We've only gained. Yeah. We've sort of only learned. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the most, <laughs> like, I think that there, while, for, while I do feel that we've like kind of highlighted a lot of elements of it that are mm -hmm. quite, I think it's underpinned by something really ho strongly mm. homosocial, if not outright gay. Yes. I think that Mr. Yeah. Page and Mr. Ford would marry each other if their husbands died is just gay. Um pretty good but it, it's in service of like a more wholesome <laughs> and healthy form of heterosexuality than like we ever see again yeah I agree that's that's what I kept feeling when I was reading it is I was like actually does this turn out to be the healthiest heterosexuality that exists anywhere and is it because everyone's involved <laughs> so in a way it's still kind of gay it's still gay <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 
I've, yeah, I've, I've really talked myself into this play over the course of this conversation, I have to say. I already, I already was inclined towards it because I just do yeah. really feel it gets rejected because of sexism. Mm -hmm. um, and like community is queer. We co-sign that. Yeah, That's they're just like message. a big queer family. Um, gonna co-raise all of Parson Hughes' little fairy children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so at the end of each episode, live for you we decide what we are going to discuss next week i think a couple things have come up that could be interesting to pursue um but i Hitch wonder away. yeah but i kind <laughs> of wonder about i mean i think so comedy of errors is one option for sure we did talk about that a lot but that is you mm. know two very silly comedies right in a row um Another thing that I found myself kind of holding in my head near the end as we were talking about the fairies is, of course, A Midsummer mm. Night's Dream. Yeah. Yeah. And like sort of <laughs> the love story of Anne, Anne Page and Fenton's love story made visible. Yeah. Perhaps. But also <laughs> in a way ending in another like vision of communal heterosexuality, perhaps. Totally. Totally. Um, well, it's time for a banger. Let's yeah, do let's do it. Yeah. So join us in two weeks time for a Midsummer Night's Dream. Until then, do follow us, um, subscribe, leave a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it um, on Please. Spotify or iTunes or wherever you wish to listen. Um, also, give us a follow over on Instagram. Please do that at This Shakespeare is Gay. Or on Twitter at This Shakes is Gay. That's S-H-A-X. And we'll see you soon. Goodbye.